0: I, w- I did a funeral a couple weeks ago, and, and they didn't have the mortuary, didn't have any music or any way to play music. So I had my iPhone, and I downloaded the songs they wanted really quick, hooked it up to some computer speakers. But my ringtone is a cricket. And right in the middle of the funeral, Ann was calling me. She forgot I was doing a memorial service and thought, wondered why I wasn't home. And so there was a cricket noise mixed with whatever song was playing. <laughs> So I'm trying to remember to silence. <laughs> well, the book of Luke. We're going to go through the gospel of Luke beginning tonight. I'm so glad that you joined us. Um, I love the book of Luke. I I specifically saved it for last in going through the gospels. I mean, I love the gospel of John for sure, but we've done Matthew back years ago after the book of Leviticus, um, well, no, after Leviticus, we did the book of Hebrews because Hebrews goes really well with, with, um, with Leviticus. And then after Deuteronomy, we did the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew's referring a lot to um, the Pentateuch. And so, we've, but we've done, and we did Mark fairly recently. The only books that we haven't yet done going through the Bible are Luke and Acts, which go together, they're both written by Luke. So we're gonna go through those and then we have we're doing First Peter right now on Sunday morning, so we have First and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. So, we'll be finishing the Bible before you know it. And I will, I will. I feel like I can die in peace if if I can say, Hey, we've been all the way through the Bible. So it's taken eight years. It'll probably take another year or so. But but uh, it's an accomplishment. But Luke is an awesome book, and in a lot of ways. Uh, for a lot of reasons. It's one of my favorites, um, if not my favorite gospel. Luke was a doctor and a historian, and he was brilliant. Luke was probably perhaps the smartest guy that wrote any, any books of the, of the uh, New Testament, for sure, maybe even the Old Testament. A legitimate scholar in every way, but also a physician, and he wrote Luke and Acts, which means that he wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, other than Paul, and uh, which is pretty significant. Although I guess the Gospel of John, Revelation, First, Second, Third John are pretty close in the same number of chapters, but Luke um, traveled with Paul. On his second and third missionary journey, Luke was with Paul um, in the end. Paul's last book that he wrote, Second Timothy, when he was about to die, and he was feeling kind of down. He was writing to Timothy, and, and he, he towards the end of the last chapter, he said, only Luke is with me. Everyone else is gone. So Luke was a faithful guy who stuck with him until the end. Um, the quality of Greek in the book of Luke, is higher and better than in any other book in the New Testament, even than Paul's books, and Paul uses an excellent, an excellent um, style of Greek for sure, but Luke is a step above that. He even starts the, the book using classical Greek as, a co- as opposed to Koine Greek. Koine was the conversational Greek that was typically used in everyday conversation, and most of the New Testament, in fact all of it except for the first four verses of Luke, are written in that Koine Greek, but Luke starts out writing in classical Greek, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Luke was not only a historian and a doctor. Being a doctor, by the way, there are more physical descriptions and medical terms in here than there is anywhere else in the Scriptures. He's constantly alluding to um, different medical terminology and medical conditions and things like that very specifically, and that makes it interesting. But as an historian, Luke also um, gives way more details, historical details, than any of the other Gospels. And it's possible that when some of the times when Paul is alluding to the Gospel that I preached, he was actually talking about the Gospel of Luke because Luke was compiling this as he was traveling with Paul, and it definitely lines up with an awful lot of what Paul says. You can see that influence for sure. Um, There are people who believe that Luke and Acts were written as the legal brief for Paul to take with him when he would appear before Caesar in the end for his final trial. And when you read it through, you can see how, wow, that, that would be pretty profound and amazing if that was the case. Um, Luke is also unique because he definitely interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary was probably influential in an awful lot of the writing of the book because throughout the Gospel of Luke, you see things that only Mary would have known. The other Gospels don't mention. The Gospel of Mark was probably the last or the first Gospel written, and most people say that the other Gospels borrow from Mark. But Luke presents a real problem for them, because even though Luke was definitely written later than Mark, Luke includes a whole lot of things that Mark doesn't have, including personal information from Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so that's, I think, interesting. From a literary standpoint, not only is it a high form of language, but the Gospel of Luke contains more um, Poems and songs, just beautiful things that none of the other Gospels contain. Not only that, you're used to... I mean, we all love the parables, those stories that Jesus told. Well, maybe you don't realize it, but almost all the parables that you're familiar with are in the Gospel of Luke. Luke told parables way, way, way more than any other Gospel. Luke, the Gospel of Luke contains 23 parables of Jesus. And 18 of those do not appear in any other book. So he has 18 uniquely told parables that are only in Luke. And so we'll see that as we go through. So again, reflective of his, um, you know, a lot of times um, a love for art is something that will follow after high intelligence. People who kind of don't get art think, let's just skip over that part. But someone who understands the undercurrents, and it's why they try to teach you poetry and art in school, and most of us don't get it. But when you come to understand it and realize that it's affecting you at a deeper level, you begin to connect on a, on a level that's beyond just the cognitive. And you can see this just in the fact that a song can affect you emotionally so much. Uh, A song that you heard years ago reminds you of a different time and takes you back to a different place. Um, Poetry has an amazing capacity to do that. I, I always, in my car, I have my iPod on random, and I have a vast assortment of songs, but I'm always amazed at how certain songs just really touch me in a place that, you know, just saying something doesn't do it. and I have that happen many days, especially when I'm going out to spend some time with the Lord and a song pops up and it's like, wow, you know, I can really relate to that. That really feels powerful. Well, Luke was a guy who could connect on that level as well as being um, intellectually keyed into details and everything. His his gospel is amazingly accurate. There are people who um, were atheists who came to Christ by taking the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and trying to follow it and find something wrong, and in every case it was, it was historically accurate. So as a historian, there's, there's no one better. As a writer. The best that wrote in the in the New Testament, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but when the Holy Spirit inspires someone, he still uses their personality and their gifts and things like that. but just a lot of a lot of awesome stuff in here, and so um, I think you'll I think you'll enjoy going through it. I know I will Oh another thing is that prayer is mentioned in Luke more than any other gospel by far most of the prayers of Jesus, his teachings on prayer are contained in this book. Um, it, that, was, that was important as well. So um, let's jump right in to verse 1. And we'll read verses 1 through 4 because in the Greek they're all one sentence. And like I said, this was the formal introduction to the book written in classical, academic, formal Greek. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed." he addresses Luke and Acts to Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus, but by referring to him as most excellent Theophilus, he was some sort of an official in the Roman government. And it's one reason why people think this may have been a legal brief that was laid out. But obviously, his stated purpose is right here. He's saying, I want to tell you eyewitness accounts. And that word for eyewitnesses is the word the Greek word that means uh, to see with the prefix auto, a u t o, which means something is in and of itself, and so autoopsomai is see for yourself. So he's saying the people who are who are the sources of this information. Luke himself probably was never exposed to seeing Jesus personally, but he spent years interviewing eyewitnesses, people who would see for themselves. And do, by the way, the word autopsy is the same transliterated word, to see for yourself. And so he kind of did an autopsy on the story of Jesus and what had happened to present the evidence. And so eyewitnesses and those who are, as he says, ministers, that isn't the normal word that's used for ministers. This is a word that actually referred to somebody who was rowing in the bottom of the boat. It was the lowest form of servant. And so he said, you know, we're nothing special, he's saying, but I'm telling you, I know this is true, I've investigated it, you can, you can trust what I'm saying. And laying it out for Theophilus, that you may know this the certainty of these things to which you are instructed. So Luke is a great book to present evidence for Jesus being who he said he was and who we believe he is because he goes into great details. So now the first thing that he does as he shifts in verse 5 to the common language that he'll use throughout the rest of the book, um, he talks about the birth of, of John the Baptist and This is something that the other Gospels don't really contain. But it's really important because prophecies in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi refer to John the Baptist. And so where Luke is picking up the story is earlier than anyone else, any of the other Gospels, except for John, who starts in the beginning. But in terms of the story of Jesus, it picks up showing how, okay, when we left off in Malachi, this is what was happening, and now in Luke, here's the story. And so he says, there were in the days of Herod, the king of Judah. Now, this was Herod the Great. Um, he was responsible for building many of the great accomplishments there. Completely crazy guy, but this is while he killed members of his own family and everything. But This was during his day that a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Ab- Abijah, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So they were both of the, of the um, priestly line. And notice the detail to make sure that that's documented. And they were both righteous before God. Nice thing to be said about you. Walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, which was a huge disgrace in those days, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. You couldn't even start functioning as a priest until you were 30, and he was way past that. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So, it was his turn to go and light the incense in the holy place in the temple. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but that was the most honored thing for any priest to get to do, and that's why they cast lots. That was like a dice game kind of a thing that they did, or picking, choosing straws, in order to see who gets to do the incense. Now, at that time, there were, it's estimated that there were like 20,000 priests, so if you got to do the incense, it was probably the only time in your life that you would get to do it. It would be an extreme honor to be able to do it. And so, um, but it was his turn. And so the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense because the incense was all about the prayers for the people. And so the people would gather around and be praying outside while one priest was in the holy place um, burning incense and praying to the Lord. And while he's in there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And you have to wonder if he thought, does this happen every time? Uh, but he, he felt the way most people would when they see an angel. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel, who we will find out later is Gabriel, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, he probably wasn't praying for a son while he was there at the time praying at the altar of incense, um, because normally those prayers would be for the people, not for yourself. And besides that, they were already so old that he didn't think that was a possibility. But Gabriel's referring to prayers that they had prayed years before, and it's interesting how you know prayer can be answered Always in God's timing, not always in ours. But, uh, you know, be careful if you've prayed years ago to have a child and you haven't yet. It could happen. (laughs) It did for him. So he said, your prayers were heard. And you're going to have a son named John and he'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So they had a Nazarite vow. Um, you know about the Nazarite vow from Samson, who wasn't supposed to touch wine and who wasn't supposed to cut his hair. John the Baptist was one of only two people in the scriptures that took a Nazarite vow for life. Most people would take a Nazarite vow just for a, a month or you know, a period of time. But he was told to have a Nazarite vow from birth. So he wouldn't cut his hair, he wouldn't drink wine, they pointed out. But he was filled with the Spirit from the moment he was conceived, which is pretty amazing, too. It's interesting, without going off on a rant on drinking, that in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, don't be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In that case, drinking and being filled with the Spirit are contrasted as being... Um, opposites in some way or at least being contrasting and so just another reason why I personally just don't I don't want to do anything that might get in the way of me being filled with the Spirit and so that same connection at least is made here and and make what you want of that um, certainly drinking wine isn't forbidden in the Scriptures for everyone just for people that want to be filled with the Spirit So, <laughs> so he says And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He would bring about a real revival among people in Israel. And he'll also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so he's going to have this unique role and he is said to be... In the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, the connection with Elijah is interesting because there were prophecies even back in Isaiah about a coming one who would prepare the way of the Lord. And some of these scriptures are quotes from there that you'll see in the next couple chapters. In Malachi, he specifically says that the the Messiah won't come until Elijah comes and he does all this stuff. And so when you read, like, in fact, just turn over there quickly to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament, so go to Matthew and go left just a tiny bit. And look at the last um, two verses of Malachi, chapter 4. He's been talking about the fact that the day of the Lord is coming the Son of Righteousness will arise, and so on. And now he says, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so he is here saying, um, you know, that... uh, that Elijah is going to come before the second coming. Now this is why people who saw him and doing what he was doing, and they thought he is Elijah. Now in John's gospel, John the Baptist denied being Elijah. He said, I'm not Elijah. Jesus, in talking about him in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 11, said, they said, is he Elijah? And Jesus said, well, He could have been if you had received him. So here in Luke, we get this insight, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so he was probably an Elijah-like character. Now, when Jesus came, he was rejected by his own people, but he offered himself as Messiah. This gets into interesting trips when you start thinking about the possibilities of, you know, if he came unto his own and his own received him not, so that this ended up happening. He was rejected. What if they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah? And Jesus seems to have said that in Matthew that if they had accepted him as the Messiah and embraced him as the Messiah, then John the Baptist could have been a complete fulfillment of Malachi, and Jesus who still would have had to have died because that was prophesied, but he could have entered into his kingdom right then without a couple thousand year delay so that's at least a possibility. It's interesting. But he wasn't Elijah, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. The same, had a similar kind of ministry. Um, Elijah showed up on, on the Mount of Transfiguration much later than this. And so if John the Baptist was Elijah, that would have been a good trick. Um, I believe that Elijah... Is, I believe that Moses and Elijah are going to show up during the tribulation period as the two witnesses. I can't say it 100%. There are different people who have different theories. Almost everyone believes that Elijah is one of the witnesses. So, um, you know, but just between us, Moses is the other one. Um, so that's just a little snippet on, you know, John the Baptist. And this is a comment that we get that we don't have anywhere else. Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? Uh, Zacharias, you're in the holy place and an angel shows up and he knows that you prayed for a kid and don't have one. He tells you your wife's going to be pregnant. You're asking for a miracle, but he does. He said, I'm an old man. My wife's well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, well, I'm just not anybody. I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Glad you're happy. But behold, you want a sign? You will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you do not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. So he said, just because you were doubtful and you want a miracle, poof, you can't speak. Won't be able to speak until all this takes place, so he's like, yeah, I guess I should have, I should have just believed. But the people were waiting outside for Zacharias because he had been in there for so long. And verse twenty-two, when he came out, he couldn't speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. He couldn't talk, but he was like gesturing, trying to explain. Oh man, the angel, and my my wife pregnant and you know he's doing all this and they're like what it's kind of funny the way people are with with people who can't talk they also think they can't hear and later they wrote him notes to try to communicate with him he could hear fine he just couldn't talk but uh so um you know that happened and and um as soon as his service was completed uh he departed to his own house and and verse 24 after those days his wife elizabeth conceived So she wasn't even pregnant at the time, so somehow he had to communicate something to his old wife that, uh, because this wasn't an immaculate conception, so imagine trying to convince someone of that when you can't speak. But I give him props, and she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people so she was pregnant but she kind of hid out because she's like how do you explain this she might have been you know in her 80s and she's pregnant and she's just like wow but she was just joyous that god had done this now in the sixth month now also remember luke's a doctor nobody else is talking about which trimester they're in or how pregnant was she and and a lot of people in those days, wouldn't even be aware of those kinds of details of exactly how long a gestation period would be. I, I hear pastors today even who seem not to know. I heard a pastor who said that, you know, a woman in his church was 10 months pregnant, and they were praying, that. and I'm like, uh, excuse me. But, <laughs> but he, he uh, you know, so she was kind of hiding out. In the sixth month, Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now they lived, Zacharias and Elizabeth lived down in Jerusalem because he worked in the temple. Nazareth is 80 miles north, and that's up near the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. This is where Mary and Joseph lived. And so now it's going to bring in, Well, she's pregnant, now it's going to bring in what happened with them. And he came to a virgin, and he mentions that she's a virgin several times, and that word in the Greek can only reference a virgin and in case you you doubt it later on she says how could I be pregnant verse 34 because I don't know a man in other words clearly she was a virgin if somebody doesn't believe in the virgin birth they don't believe the gospel of Luke again the most scientific gospel that we have her name was Mary and having come in the angel said to her Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. A pretty cool thing to say, you know, and one thing that we as Protestants sometimes mess up is because of some of the mariolatry that's involved at times in the Catholic Church, we tend to go overboard the other way. Now Mary is never seen as a co-redemptrix. She didn't die for us. She couldn't. She was not immaculately conceived. She was not perpetually a virgin. None of those things are taught in scripture. But she was one special woman. No one, no woman ever was more special than she was. And for Gabriel to come in and talk to you like this, I think we should have a we could learn something but from those who respect her and honor her and and we certainly should. She was an amazing girl. Imagine being a little teenager and having you know, an angel come and tell you you're going to be pregnant, having to live with the shame of that your whole life because nobody else believed the virgin story, and uh, faithful to the end, there at the cross when Jesus died, there after he rose. And so um, Mary was was a very special woman. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and Considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's a lot to drop on a little girl. Hey, all this is going to happen, you're going to have a baby without ever having relations with anybody, and he's going to rule on the throne of David forever. Pretty, pretty cool. And Mary said to the angel, are you kidding me? How can this be, since I don't know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you, therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God clearly not teaching that well in a spiritual way you know you're going to have relations with joseph or you're going to have relations with somebody else and god's going to do kind of a cool thing and it's going to be almost as if he's a son of god no clearly no this is going to be something that god does in you and he's a son of god he won't be joseph's son And so the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, verse 36, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now six months for her, who was called barren. Nobody else knew about it. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Keep that verse in the back of your mind believing anything about what the Bible says is not a problem when you understand that simple statement that Gabriel made, with God, everything is possible. Anything that we pray for with God, nothing is impossible. It's God we're talking about. Then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel disappeared, Gabriel left. Again, what faith. You can see why People held her in high regard. She goes, and and we should all say this to the Lord, behold, we're your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever God you want to do is fine with me. Great example. So then in the next few verses, um, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, went into the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias, greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard that Mary was out there, The baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she prophesied this. She spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed. For there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. I'm sure that helped Mary when Elizabeth came up with that. But here, and we see the Holy Spirit a lot in, the, in Luke and Acts for sure. And he understood the power of the Holy Spirit because he came along after the Holy Spirit had been given. And so, but here Mary had shared with him, and perhaps even Elizabeth, the feeling just the Spirit coming upon her. And her saying this, that she didn't even know what it was. And Mary just going, wow, that's amazing. And Mary then has a prophecy of her own. And here's the song that she just spontaneously delivered. And it's a beautiful uh, song. And you can um, read over that on your own. I don't want to read all the way through it. But she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the the lowly state of his maid servant; henceforth all generations will call me blessed, and so on. Just a beautiful song of praise. And verse 56, Mary remained with her for about three months, probably waited for, to help out with the pregnancy, and then returned to her house. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When the neighbors heard how God had shown mercy to her, they rejoiced with her, as had been prophesied. And so on the eighth day, they came to circumcise John the Baptist. That's what they would do. And that's when they would name the child, a son, would be on the eighth day. And so they said, you know, what are you going to name him? Let's call him Zacharias. Name him after his dad. They're like, hey, Zacharias, you, you're, you're better than Tony Randall. I mean, you created a kid when you're this old. Let's name him Zacharias. Zacharias may not be around that much longer, so Zacharias Junior will be here, and and um, his mother said, "No, we'll call him John." And they said, "Come on, nobody in your relatives are named that." And so in verse sixty-two, they made signs to his father that he would what he would have him called again. Why were they using sign language for a guy who's only mute? He's not deaf. And he asked for a writing tablet or an ancient iPad. And he wrote saying, His name is John. And they were like, Whoa, okay. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke praising God. First things out of his mouth were just to praise God. And then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed, as you can imagine. And everybody who heard him kept them in their hearts, verse 66, saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. And then again, here's this whole song that Zacharias ends up delivering at this time too. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. His description of what God's going to do is all messianic. And he's talking forward. Look at verse 76. You, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Um, really an amazing prophecy that happened just boom when John the Baptist was born. And just beautiful linguistically, it's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful in English. It's even more amazing in the original language. So verse 80, the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now, John the Baptist Ordinarily would have been a priest, but he rejected the priesthood in order to go out in the desert, fulfill his Nazarite vow, and to preach. And so we'll see that coming up here. Now it shifts um, because Luke is keeping chronology right. In chapter 2, he talks about the birth of Christ. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, all the known world really is what that means this census first took place while Quirinius or Cyrenius was governing Syria so all went to be registered everyone to his own city now Caesar Augustus was the successor he he was actually the adopted son of Julius Caesar he was his great nephew Um, his, his name actually was Octavius And he took the name Caesar, Caesar is the title of his job, and instead of being Caesar Octavius, although sometimes he's called that, he called himself Caesar Augustus. The word Augustus means revered, honored, treasured. Before that time, and all during the time of Julius Caesar and guys before him, Rome was very proudly a republic. It wasn't about the ruler, it was about the people. And the ruler was simply a servant of the people, a representative of the people. Caesar Augustus, Octavius, comes along and he says, I am august. I am revered, honored, basically claiming divine right, claiming deity for himself, wanting to be worshipped. And he was a real um, loser in a lot of ways. Uh, But we know a lot about him from secular history as well. And as we know about, you know, people who are elected to serve the people as a republic and who decide to turn it into a one-man rule. It's happened. But uh, Now, there are people who go, why did they, in order to take a census, why would they send you back to your homeland? Well, that was pretty, a pretty normal thing to do, and in some ways it was even, you know, nice because you're sending... Um, Augustus was into family and things like that. So, sending people to their relatives would allow them to have a place to stay, generally, and see their family and things like that. But also, it was the best way to sort everyone out because people were living all over the place. And because uh, Bethlehem was the hometown of David, and uh, Joseph was a descendant of David, as was Mary, that's where they had to go in order to pay their taxes. Now, there are people who have questioned this historically, but um, Justin Martyr, who was a, a church father in the 2nd century, um, wrote that at his time during the 2nd century in Rome, they still had all of the legal records showing the details of this census. And so as early as the 2nd century, it was confirmed that this actually happened. But you also, it's kind of obvious why would somebody put in details like this unless you could verify them or not? And so this was just Luke being precise. And so everybody went to be registered. Joseph went up from Galilee. And they always say up, even though going from Galilee to Bethlehem is going south. But everything going towards Jerusalem is considered up in Israel. So he went to Bethlehem because he was there and he wanted to be registered along with Mary. His betrothed wife, they were engaged. She was about ready to have a child, but they hadn't married yet. Um, And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. And now you have this great story of, of the shepherds and there in Bethlehem, and we're real familiar with this from Christmas, but shepherds were out there and the angels came, and and, you know, when you talk about the Christmas story, my favorite version of the Christmas story is Luke 2, 8 through 14, and it's just, it beautifully tells what happened as Jesus' birth was described, and you'll see it on Christmas cards and things like that, and you know, they're I memorized it when I was three years old, probably, and don't feel bad if you haven't, but it's just a beautiful thing. And so you can read through that. And the angel of the Lord came to these shepherds. The shepherds, by the way, were probably, because Bethlehem was the place where they would keep the lambs that would be used for sacrifice. And so they were probably grooming lambs to be used, you know, in the temple worship and so they were out there doing that and the angel came and said uh, don't be afraid that's what angels usually say when they show up i bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people not just to you not just to jews but to everyone for there is born to you this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the anointed one the lord and this will be assigned to you you'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger And suddenly there were just a multitude of angels there praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Many people make an issue that it doesn't say they were singing, it just says they were saying, but they easily could have been singing it. It's stated in in the kind of rhythm that would have done that. And so when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said, hey, let's go. So they went down to Bethlehem. It says in 16 they came with haste found Mary, Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen him, these shepherds, who were a low level of society, became the first missionaries. And they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She was just going, wow, that's interesting. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, For all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now, just like with John the Baptist, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day and they called his name Jesus. The angel Gabriel had told them to name him that. Now, um, you're also told in one of the other Gospels that Joseph was told about Jesus being born and that his name would be called Emmanuel or God with us. But that was just a part of a title that he was. The word Jesus means Jehovah is salvation, the word sozo for salvation and the J-E or the yeah, yeah from Yahweh or Jehovah. And so um, he wasn't named Emmanuel, but he was called Emmanuel because he certainly was God with us and meaning essentially the same thing. And so uh, now when the days of her purification, so he was circumcised and she was went through the rites of purification, and then they brought him to Jerusalem in order to present him to the Lord. And it, was, and it says, uh, verse 23 quotes, that every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That means the first child that's born is dedicated according to deuteronomy in a special way hey our first kid you take them there this is where we end up getting the rite of baby dedication really is from this tradition we want to dedicate all our kids to the lord though and so they came to offer a sacrifice according to what deuteronomy says and they brought a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons which You would normally bring a lamb, but if you were poor, you could bring a couple birds. So this shows that Mary and Joseph were poor. And there in Jerusalem was a man named Simeon, and this is an interesting story that no one else really records, but no doubt Luke had the opportunity to interview people who witnessed, or Mary told Luke about this. Um, This guy Simeon was just and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Notice how many times the Holy Spirit's mentioned that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's amazing that the Holy Spirit had told Simeon, you're an old dude, but you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And so he came by the Spirit. He didn't just decide to do it. The Spirit led him into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, and there were tons of couples with tons of babies, Simeon went over and took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, and now here's another poem that was written by Simeon, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, I can die now. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He goes, I've seen it now, and you can take me. And notice in verse 33, it describes Joseph and Mary as Joseph and his mother. Didn't say his father and mother, Joseph and his mother. Marveled at those things which were spoken of him. They're like, wow. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And in fact, he would be either what brings you down or what lifts you up. And he has been the fall and rise of everyone ever since. Your whole life hinges on what you do with Jesus. And so some people stumbled on him, rejected him. Other people met him and were lifted up and saved by him. But he says, he'll, he'll be the rise and fall. And, um, and for a sign which will be spoken, because, uh, be spoken against, there will be people who are going to reject him. And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He said, Mary, good news and bad news. Good news is this kid is going to change the world. The bad news is, it's going to break your heart when you see what they do to him. And a grim but important warning, because the Holy Spirit was revealing to Simeon now something that no one had ever grasped before that, the idea that Messiah would come and suffer and die, and yet save the world and be glorified. And so, you know, again, just... Beautiful, insightful things that he lays out here. There's another lady, Anna, who was very old, and she was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Just an interesting thing. All these details. There are a lot of people today, and you go on the internet and you see a lot of them who, and usually they're all millennialists who want to believe that the church is Israel. But they, they claim that, you know, Israel has been basically lost. That after the Assyrian captivity, the tribes of Israel were lost. And, you know, they're probably all up in northern Asia somewhere. And the people who are in Israel today aren't even really Jews. Um, certainly not true. But here is someone after that time who knew that she was of the tribe of Asher. So the meticulous detail that Luke provides is interesting. She was of great age. Although, when you're this old, calling it great, I'm not sure. (laughs) To me, a great age is when you're younger. But she had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. So she got married. Generally, then they would marry when they're teenagers. And she had been married for seven years, and then her husband died. And she had been a widow now for 84 years. So she's up close to 100 years old, at least. And so... um, But she never left the temple and served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She realized, too, (laughs) that, wow, this is special. And so when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, just like John the Baptist had, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And so, like John the Baptist, special, unique, but even much more so. So they, so he was born in Bethlehem. They took him down after eight days, circumcised him, took him to Jerusalem, which is south of Bethlehem. And then it tells, well, later on they ended up back in Nazareth, up in the Galilee region. We do know from the other accounts that, for a period of time in order to escape Herod, they went down into Egypt for a while. Later on, they ended up back at their home in Nazareth. If you're wondering where the wise men are, they came along much later, probably when Jesus was a toddler in Nazareth back at their house. Um, wasn't They weren't at the manger for sure. Um, so now it says, tells this other story that you're familiar with. Every year they would go up for the Feast of Passover to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus was 12 years old, time for his bar mitzvah, he went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And so they did all that, and Jesus was hanging around in Jerusalem, and the whole family was heading back to Nazareth, and nobody said, hey, where's Jesus? You know how that goes. A lot of people are traveling. It's easy to leave someone behind. We used to, when our kids were small, we would leave them at church regularly because Ann thought I had them, I thought she had them, and They were dinking around somewhere, and so that kind of happened, although this is kind of bad because they got a day away before they realized, hey, wait, where's Jesus? (laughs) I mean, the kid's kind (laughs) of special. Where is he? And by the time they got to him, he had been there for three days, verse 46 says. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and they were astonished at his understanding and his answers, and so they're like amazed, what are you doing here? And, and Mary said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Notice she calls Joseph father, you know, your father, because obviously she's in front of all these religious, righteous people. And so she's just trying to make this problem go away. But look what Jesus said. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? See the contrast? He's not my father, although Jesus would honor Joseph and work as a carpenter until he was 30 and start his ministry. But here he's gone, I'm 12 years old, but I know who my father is, and I'm doing his business. And everyone was amazed. They didn't understand the statement which he spoke to them. They were like, huh? And then he went down and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. He had this incredible knowledge, and he had this power, and we don't know much about what he did as a kid. And... There's a lot of phony stories about him healing little birds and, and playing tricks on his friends and everything, but um, probably not true. But he was subject to them, or he submitted to them. He obeyed them. He, he let them lead him and teach him. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. She's like, whoa, this is amazing. And verse 52 is really the most thing we know about Jesus growing up. It says that he increased in wisdom, grew intellectually, stature he developed physically and in favor with God um, spiritually he grew which is an amazing thing to think about and favor with men he grew socially and this is a pretty good outline of what maturity is growing in wisdom growing in stature growing in favor with God and growing in favor with men and Jesus had to grow just like everyone else Um, he wanted to experience everything that we had experienced so though he was ahead of everyone else, probably in in all these categories, yet he learned what it was to to grow into the ministry that that God had for him. Chapter 3, now we see the ministry of John the Baptist happening. And uh, verse 1, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, look at all these details. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea at the time, the southern part of Israel. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was the tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias is the tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. The word of the Lord came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. All of these rulers have at one point, people have said for most of them, oh they never existed, but They've all been verified now independently. Um, just a detailed thing, even to the point of the fact that there were actually two high priests, which normally wouldn't be the case. Annas was actually technically the high priest, but Caiaphas was his um, stepfather, and so, or no, his father in law, and so he functioned in that role as well. They were both dirtbags, but both high priests. And so, John the Baptist headed out on his mission. And uh, he went into the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Not the same baptism that when we're baptized, we are baptized in the name of Jesus, as we will be having a baptism this Sunday night. Um, It's to identify with him in the baptism that shows the new birth. But John the Baptist baptism was a baptism to repentance wasn't that unusual in those days for ceremonial washings and baptisms when somebody's going to repent and go i need to get right with god they would just baptize them so he was doing that out there by the jordan river and we do when we go to israel we baptize people in the jordan river which is always really special and he says as it is written in the book of the words of isaiah the prophet saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, um, prophesying concerning John the Baptist coming before Jesus. And so now he's just identifying with that message, as Zacharias had as well. And it says, he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, he was not a seeker-friendly preacher. (laughs) His introduction went, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And yet people were coming out to hear it. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He goes, don't just come out and get baptized and say you repent. How about showing it with the way you live your life? And and, uh, don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. That means nothing, just that you're Jewish. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He goes, God is cleaning house. And he's putting an axe to the tree, and if you're not bearing fruit, you're gone. So the people ask him, well, what shall we do? And he answered and said to them, okay, you want to know what you should do? What does repentance look like? He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. He goes, first, if you have extra and people don't have enough, share with them. Interesting. And he said to them, collect no more than, oh, the uh, tax collectors came, wanted to be baptized. And they said, so what should we do? And he said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. In other words, just settle for what your salary is. Quit ripping people off. That would be good. The soldiers came and they said, well, what shall we do? And he said to them, quit intimidating people and accusing them falsely and be happy with the wages that you make. It's interesting that for the government officials, the tax collectors and the soldiers, he didn't say, you don't have any business being soldiers. He said no just appreciate your job and do it well tax collectors be glad you have a job and do it well and he often says that to people it's just you want to you want to live a life of repentance do the same thing that you're doing but do it right show that there's a difference between you and other people and i think that's um, pretty cool and so then As the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Messiah or not, because he's quoting these messianic passages and they're like, wow, is he the Messiah? John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He said, I'm not the Messiah. There's one coming after me. I'm telling you, I'm not worthy to tie his shoe. And sandals get pretty grody in those places. And he goes, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now people have discussed, what does this Holy Spirit and fire mean? Some people think the fire is referring, referring to the day of Pentecost when they had like tongues of fire over their heads, but I think that's wrong because for one thing, that wasn't fire. It just said, it uses a simile, it looked, it was like fire, um, But secondly, in the context, now he begins to talk about the judgment that Jesus Christ will do at his second coming, and so no doubt the fire that he's talking about, he's saying he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and start the church, but he's also going to return and destroy everyone who has rejected against him because he says his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This guy was a hellfire and brimstone preacher for sure. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. And we'll find out later Herod had problems with him. notices here the details. Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias his brother Philip's wife, Herod had married his brother's wife, Herodias. And apparently, um, John the Baptist had just called him on it. And for all the evils which Herod had done, so John the Baptist wasn't pulling any punches, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. So he ends up imprisoning John, and later, you remember the story about Um, the daughter of Herodias, um, asking for the head of John the Baptist and him being killed, which then started the ministry of Jesus. But now he mentions quickly the baptism of Jesus in verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So Jesus was identifying with all the people by being baptized. He didn't need to repent of anything. Baptism isn't only about repentance, although it is about repentance. It is also about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's also about identifying with the people of God. And so for those reasons, Jesus was baptized and it identified him as the one that John had been talking about and so um, we see that the Holy Spirit coming and ascending and the voice of the Father saying you're my beloved son so you have the Trinity um, active there in in that one event and this is also the gospel that tells us Jesus was praying while he was being baptized Um, now the rest of the chapter is a genealogy that um, we could go through it but I don't think that we necessarily need to um, it begins by saying Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, Luke is careful to say he's not the son of Joseph. He, they supposed he was the son of Joseph. This genealogy, though, genealogies always went, mentioned the men. But this genealogy differs with Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's genealogy is most likely the genealogy of Joseph. Which you go, why would you even put that in there? Um, Because in order to reign as the Messiah, Jesus would have to have the legal right to do so, and therefore he would have to be a descendant of David. And So Matthew traces through his adopted father, Joseph, his stepfather, um, traces back to David in order to establish that that Jesus had the legal right to be the Messiah. Luke is, rather than emphasizing Jesus as the Messiah, as Matthew does, or as the servant, as Mark does, or as God, as John does, Luke is establishing Jesus as a man, proving that he was really a man. Luke has way more details about his humanity, and as a doctor he would be more interested in that. And so he traces back through the genealogy of Mary, and you'll see similarities because they were both descended from David. But um, here in Mary's genealogy, it was through Nathan, the son of David, and through um, Joseph's genealogy, it was through Solomon, the son of David. The reason is there was actually a biological curse put on the descendants of Solomon's son, and therefore no one could reign if they were a biological descendant of Solomon. Um, Jesus was a biological descendant of Nathan through uh, Mary. And so this is her genealogy, but it goes all the way back to Noah, Methuselah, and all the way back to Adam, and it ends the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. (laughs) Traces him back, his humanity, and these genealogies were very commonly kept in those days in Jerusalem. And so for Luke to do his research, it probably would have been even easier than it is for us to do Um, genealogical research today thanks to the mormons and computers and everything else and so he laid that out just to demonstrate jesus christ messiah but he was a man he was related to all of us born of a virgin related to all of us so that's the first three chapters and uh, i made it (laughs) i'm just a little late sorry about that but um, let's pray Lord, thanks for your word and for this book. And for this guy, Luke, you picked a, a, an amazing guy who did just such a thorough job of documenting this so that people couldn't be under the impression that, oh, the, the Bible's just a bunch of neat little stories. But he was a scientist and he was an historian and he was interested in demonstrating the truth and veracity and reality of the gospel. So, Lord, thank you for giving us this opportunity to spend in this amazing book. And thank you for working by your spirit, not only in these characters that we saw in the first three chapters of Luke, but that your spirit fills us now, lives within us, and that we, too, can learn to follow the spirit, even as guys like Zacharias and Simeon and Anna and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and and our Lord Jesus himself. So we thank you for this evening, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.